Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Dick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome in to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. And not coincidentally, I am Larry Alex Taunton. Your man in the field. What do we mean by that? What do I mean by that in saying that I'm your man in the field? Um, Well, these days, it's always been a problem um, with uh, those who report our news and and uh, sadly with those who legislate and those who govern. But um, a major problem has often been their lack of you know interaction with real Americans. And uh, too often these days, uh, I you can really sense it. You know, Bloomberg put out a. Uh, uh, a headline a couple of days ago, uh, well, it's been more than a couple of days ago, I suppose it's been maybe about 10 days ago, a headline in which they said, um, you know, if you're really feeling the gas pinch and you only make, you know, $300,000 a year, <laughs> um, it, it, it was just a glimpse into the thinking of the people at Bloomberg that the average American, you know, is really struggling getting by on their $300,000 a year. Uh, That's not a glimpse of reality. Um, Some of you um, who are old enough, if you haven't, it's worth watching. It's kind of a fun film. We'll recall um, the 1980s film starring Michael J. Fox called Doc Hollywood. And Doc Hollywood, um, played by, by Michael J. Fox, he's, uh, he's just graduated, as I recall. I'm, I'm going from memory here. I haven't seen the film in, you know, 20 years. Um, he's just graduated medical school, say, in, in New York, and he's, he's been hired as a high-flying plastic surgeon in Hollywood, in Los Angeles. And so he's driving cross-country in his Porsche, and you know what what he would call what many would call flyover country, meaning utterly irrelevant uh, America, red states. And along the way, he has an accident and he finds himself stuck in this little town in some place like, let's say, Iowa. I don't remember exactly where he is. It's a theme that's you know taken right out of Andy Griffith. You know how many times were the snooty New Yorkers you know, stuck in Mayberry only to discover it was a pretty nice place and they were nice people. Well, the, the, the same theme is followed with Michael J. Fox and Doc Hollywood. It's, he, he brings all of what he believes are uh, his sophisticated um, ideas that he's better than all these people. He looks down upon them. And as he's forced to stay there um, because the accident was his fault, and I think a judge says he has to do, you know, a, you know, a thousand hours of community service or something like that, where he works as a physician in this little town, he soon discovers that these are nice people, and he falls in love, and and it's a, you know, everyone lives happily ever after. Um, we're seeing that in a, uh, in, on a national scale these days, but without the happy ending. And what I mean by that is, in contrast to me being your man in the field, that is to say, I am out. You know, since the, since the pandemic began, I've been in, I think, 12 countries. I was in Egypt when it started. I was uh, stuck in lockdown in uh, Spain for a time. 
Um, I've been, you know, in all over South America, uh, Asia, Africa, Europe since the pandemic, just since the pandemic began. And it's brought me into contact with people at various levels of society, not just the poor, um, the needy, but also the very rich and, uh, and powerful. And it gives me a much different perspective on what's happening, not just in this country, but in the world. But unfortunately, many of those who are reporting your media these days, they are um, you know, confined by choice to um, you know, as- associating with their um, you know, Manhattanite champagne-sipping assorts, uh, or they're confined to the beltway. And the result is that they really don't know what's going on in America. And this is true of so many of, um, you know, of our, our politicians. They just are clueless as to what life is like for the average American, or for that matter, for the average person in the world. And I talked about this a couple of shows ago where I was talking about what's happening to the common people um, around the world who have been knocked down from you know, climbing out of yeah, abject poverty into to something that resembled a kind of middle class in the third world, only to be knocked right back down into it again as a result of irrational government shutdowns. Um, I've said this to many of my friends, uh, you know, conservatives, who would say that they were in favor of the lockdowns. And I'd say, you're only in favor of the lockdowns because you get an automatic deposit. <laughs> you know, if, if your, your livelihood, the support of your family depend, uh, depends on um, the service industry, say working in a hotel, working in a restaurant, some sort of quote unquote non-essential, you know, area of industry that was automatically shut down. I promise you, um, you're in favor of getting out and getting back to work, at least if you're rational. Obviously, there are those people who are getting checks cut to them, you know, by the uh, the Biden administration, my tax dollars and yours, to stay at home, uh, which seems to be, uh, of course, what they want. But but my central point in this case has to do with the fact that many of those who are pontificating to you daily uh, on, on news broadcasts are people who are utterly clueless as to what the real world is like. You will recall um, a generation ago, George Herbert Walker Bush, not George W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush I I don't remember the exact specifics, but you know the scanners had just been introduced in the '80s, where you know um, a cashier you know would scan, as they still do, they they scan your items with a barcode, and you get that you know that beep when they uh, when they do that. Um, George Bush was mocked mercilessly by the left because he didn't know what this was. He didn't know how it worked. He was, um, he had been in government for so long, you know, he was CIA director for many years, vice president of the United States for eight years, and then president of the United States for four years. Uh, He'd been in government so long that he had not himself gone to a grocery store um, for so long to actually know how the process worked. Well, that's kid stuff compared to where we are now. Now, um, so many in our media with their automatic deposits, large ones, by the way, 
uh, are clueless as to what life is like for average Americans. They are clueless as to what red state people are like. And so the result is uh, they don't just simply mischaracterize them. They, we've come to a place where they demonize them. John uh, Stewart, you know, formerly of the, uh, you know, on Comedy Central, uh, John Stewart in a recent dialogue that you can find on TV talks about farmers with a venom that he hates them, hates them. Um, that's astonishing. And I, the question I guess I would have is, do you know any? My daughter is married to a farmer. Uh, they're hardworking people. They're a hardworking family. They're people who feed all of us. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting to me that there are people in the Beltway who create these images um, of red staters, uh, and they have have categorized them as an as an evil species, and you can see how things like um, Dachau and Auschwitz happen. Some of you will say, "Oh, wow, Larry, you know that's that's going um, too far." It begins, ladies and gentlemen, with the demonization of people. You de you dehumanize them to such a degree that you begin to contemplate doing, uh, committing atrocities against them. It's fascinating to me that uh, even in recent years, you would hear many on the left who would ask themselves, how in the world did America end up with things like slavery? How did we end up with um, Japanese internment camps during World War II? exactly what you're seeing right now. The very people who are asking those questions and talking about reparations to people who never suffered any of them are the very people who are now ready to create them. They're ready to create them for people who refuse to get vaccinated, which is a personal choice, by the way. Uh, they would do it against people who don't have a quote-unquote COVID passport. They would do it to, to people who chose to vote for Donald Trump or to people who were opposed to the left's radical agenda. And you will notice even the language has changed to such a degree that if you are a common, decent American, or European, by the way, who is in favor of um, maintaining your freedom, of maintaining your rights, of maintaining your individuality, you're increasingly characterized by media as radical. Years ago, I challenged my friend, um, my late friend and atheist, Christopher Hitchens, to a Bible study, eventually shaming him to such a degree that he, that he uh, had, you know, agreed to do it. We uh, eventually studied the Gospel of John together um, on a road trip from his home in D.C. to mine in, uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, on a beautiful day like today, by the way, uh, where we are wending our way through the, um, through the Shenandoah Valley. But I, I was saying, look, you're making all these assertions about a book that I don't think you've ever meaningfully engaged. I think you've kind of cherry-picked it. Uh, that's all you've, you've really done. Well, these days I would want to issue my challenge to many of those who are on the left and in media to actually get out and engage red state Americans. I don't, and not just cherry picking them, not, not going and looking, you know, uh, scouring the country to see if you can find some white supremacist group that you can then use to mischaracterize 
the rest of um, Red State America. Not going and in, uh, in, in seeing if you can find somewhere, you know, some, some uh, a kook. You can find those in blue states, by the way. In fact, I would suggest you can find quite a few more in blue states rather than in red states. But finding your average Americans and associating with them and understanding what their problems are, what their, what their struggles are, what their concerns are. Um, one would hope that we would see among this, this class of, of, of journalists, this class of people call them elites. I refuse to call them elites. I think they're elitists. Let's not call them elites. Let's refer to them as they are. They're elitists. They think they are better than you. But one would hope we would see a kind of Doc Hollywood, you know, Andy Griffith, Mayberry style conversion, that they would perhaps begin to realize that they are demon, demonizing decent people. But in today's show, my, my primary topic is collaboration. Collaboration is a word that has, uh, has positive meanings and it has negative meanings. It can mean, you know, that uh, artists collaborated in painting a mural. It can mean um, business partners collaborating on a project. It can mean students who collaborate um, to do a presentation before their class members. But in this case, I'm talking about collaboration in a very, very negative way. I'm talking about those people who posture as conservatives, who posture as Christians, evangelical Christians, but who spend all of their time, it seems to me, um, attacking conservatives and attacking Christians. Now, one may say that I'm guilty of this very thing in talking about the list of people that I'm bringing up. Not so. Uh, these are uh, these are individuals who, in my opinion, um, they are 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 guilty, uh, at least partially, of abandoning their faith for the sake of um, popularity, for the sake of building their Twitter followings, for the sake of selling their books. Um, but I also think of um, of Luke Luke chapter sixteen. Um, this is a passage that you would do well to familiarize yourself with because we're seeing it in these times in which we live. Do you, do you hear that? It sounds like a horse is entering the studio, and it is actually my German shepherd, Ranger, who, is, uh, who has come to join us. He's a big fan of the show, by the way. Ranger's rather intellectual. He, uh, he's, he's very cerebral, and he processes um, these things, though I must say his response to Democrats is just a little bit more um, teeth bearing um, than is than is mine. But Luke chapter sixteen, there we find there we find the story of the shrewd manager. And the story, I'm, I'm not going to read it. I'm I'm just going to briefly characterize it for you. And the story goes something like this: um, that there's this accountant. He works for um, a wealthy man. And um, he has been skimming off of the top, and uh, his employer discovers it and says to him, um, "Look, you're fired, but I'm going to I'm going to give you a week or you know whatever it is. I'm going to give you a little bit of time um, to um, you know to close up shop here and get your things and move out." 
Well, um, the guy with this bit of time that he has, what he does is he ingratiates himself to um, his employer's customers. And he does this by um, giving them big breaks on the products that they're buying. And uh, thus he, uh, he, he creates for himself a welcoming into their company, meaning that he's being fired by one employer, but he's now leveraged that employer's product to find himself um, employment with someone else. And uh, his employer realizes what he's done, and he's, you know, he, he, he can only say, you know, look, you're a pretty clever guy, uh, devious, but you're a clever guy to have done this, to have figured this out, and um, to have now found for yourself um, a new dwelling. And Jesus talks about this. He, he talks about how sons of this world are much shrewder in dealing with their own generation than are um, the sons of light, meaning Christians. Uh, we simply, as Christians, um, are much more easily outmaneuvered um, in this world um, because our minds simply don't work like our opponents. That's what Jesus says in that story. The, the sons of this world are much more shrewd. They're much more clever in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. And I'll just give you an example of this. Um, I, most of the people I associate with, the, the conservatives that I associate with, the Christians, which are not always, by the way, the same thing. Um, not all conservatives are, are, uh, are Christian. And uh, unfortunately, not all Christians are conservatives, though by doctrine they ought to be. But... None of the people that I hang out with uh, who fall into that category sit and plot and scheme about how to rule the world, how to make their neighbor do what they want them to do, um, how to reorganize humanity according to their own dictates. That just isn't part and parcel of the conservative mind. It's not the way we think. We think in terms of live and let live. Um, we, uh, we want, by and large, to be left alone. Um, I think conservatives, generally speaking, when they enter into government or homeowners associations or in uh, you know, running the law firm or whatever it is, I think it's generally not with the mentality that they want to control other people, but they want to keep someone else from, from screwing it all up. You know, um, you want to be head of your homeowners association so that you can abolish the homeowners association, so that you can tell, you know, you can tell the recycling Nazis to leave you and everybody else alone. That's more of the conservative mind. That is not the way the left thinks. And in a future show, we will talk about the Great Reset, which is, which is not, by the way, conspiracy theory. It's, it's, it's for real. Klaus Schwab, who is the head of the, uh, um, doggone it, it's gone out of my head, the, uh, the Economic Forum, uh, World Economic Forum. Klaus Schwab has written a book. You've probably seen Schwab, by the way, these days all over um, social media, giving unhinged sp uh, speeches. Uh, he's tight. Uh, 
with guys ranging from uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, and Joe Biden. And um, he's written a book called The Great Reset, and he has been talking about food shortages that are coming and in uh, how the pandemic, uh, they've been able to leverage it to advance their agenda of getting everyone um, on um, the, the digital radar uh, with digital um, IDs. Uh, you can look this guy up. Uh, again, this is, uh, this is not conspiracy theory. Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum. And he's not, he's not fringe. I mean, he is fringe in the sense that ideologically the guy is unhinged. But his views are quite mainstream and the World Economic Forum is increasingly powerful. But when you sit and listen to guys like Schwab, when you sit and listen to Bill Gates, who is now telling people that they shouldn't, they shouldn't, um, should no longer be eating meat. You know, he's trying to push government agendas uh, on everything from um, vaccinations uh, to the food menu at your restaurants. As you listen to guys like this, you find yourself struggling to get in their heads because you're thinking, who thinks like this? Who thinks like this? Who thinks that it's their place to tell me, and not merely hundreds of thousands or millions, but billions of people, the whole world, how to live their lives? These people do. They, that's what they sit and think about. Uh, and they're, they're ideologues. And, and by, by ideologue, uh, let me define that for you. An ideologue is someone who thinks that ideas matter more than people. Ideas matter more than people. Good example of this, Lady Astor in the 1930s visits Russia. And um, she's talking with Stalin. And she's heard about the purges, collectivization, um, she's heard about the state-engineered famines. And so she just asked Stalin, um, flatly, when are you going to stop killing people? And he says, when it's no longer necessary. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't pretend he's not doing it. He just says, look, it's for the common good. These are people who see, in the words of Pink Floyd, they see individuals as just another brick in the wall that they're building. Human beings in that worldview, which is a socialist, utopian, fascist worldview, human beings are simply raw material for building the utopian state. That's the way they see human beings. That's what an ideologue is. You know, uh, I don't know if it originated with Stalin. I don't think Stalin was especially clever with the turn of phrase, so I doubt he invented it. But it's often attributed to him the saying that in order to make an omelet, you have to crack a few eggs. That's, that's very utopian. That's how utopians think. I love the way uh, Dostoevsky put it in the Brothers Karamazov, where he says, and this is an exact quotation, but he says basically that, that um, liberals love people in the general, not in the specific. They love the idea of the poor man. They love the, the, the idea of um, the people that they are helping. They just, they just don't love them specifically. They don't want to meet them. They don't want to know them. They don't want to engage them. So this is the kind of evil 
that we are encountering these days. And by the way, I don't use the word evil casually. Uh, not at all. Um, but we're going to talk about this just a little bit more. We're going to take a little break right now, and then I'm going to come back with my list of conservative collaborators. We will be back in just a moment. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back in to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. That was the voice of a former Alabama coach and legend, uh, Gene Stallings. Uh, any of you who are, you know, who are fans of the Dallas Cowboys would certainly remember him, fans of the Alabama Crimson Tide, which I certainly am. But when he said just there, um, <laughs> Larry is my favorite player, uh, that, was, that was very funny because Anybody who knows uh, Gene Stallings knows that he's a guy that in interviews would answer almost anything except the question as to who his favorite player was. And for good reason. He doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure he loved almost all of his, uh, his, his players. But he decided um, in ad-libbing when we were uh, doing an interview with him, visiting him in his ranch in Paris, Texas, actually Powderly, Texas, he uh, he he decided to, to ad lib there. Larry Larry is my favorite my favorite player, <laughs> and uh, just to be clear, by the way, I did not play football at the University of Alabama. Though growing up, I certainly dreamed of it. Um, we're talking about a collaboration, and we're talking about it in the very negative sense of collaboration, not collaboration like my. My business partner and I, we collaborated on a recent project. Not like that. We're talking about collaboration um, with the enemy. And, uh, you know, some of the most famous collaborators, at least uh, in, in my mind, Vidkin Quisling is, uh, in fact, the term Quisling has come to mean a traitor, a, uh, a, a collaborator. Um, and Quisling was a, uh, if you don't actually know his story, you only know the term, Quisling was a Norwegian uh, who had been collaborating with the Nazis in preparation for their invasion um, of Norway, and uh, Qu Quisling was a Norwegian, and uh, as, as reward for his collaboration with the Nazis, with the fascists, Quisling was made head of state, at least kind of marginally. Uh, head of state. I've been to his home, which has now been turned into a Norwegian Holocaust museum. It's uh, just outside of, uh, of Oslo. It's a fascinating place to go if you ever get the chance to, um, to go there. Quisling, after the war, he was arrested and he was executed for, and rightly so, for his, um, for his collaboration with the enemy, which led to the deaths of um, uh, tens of thousands of his own countrymen. Well, today we are seeing um, we are seeing collaborators um, on the uh, on the conservative and the Christian side of uh, of things, and it's quite startling to see what's happening in how it's happening. How many people who call themselves evangelical Christians, for example? Um, are are really collaborating um, with with a government 
with an agenda with uh, from the radical left that is unspeakably evil. And some of you would say, you know, Larry, this is politics. Let's not talk about politics. You got to. I mean, do you are you paying attention to what the left is doing with children? They're sexualizing children. Pedophilia is being mainstreamed. Mainstreamed. The mutilation of children in sex changes is being mainstreamed. Um, we are seeing a radical agenda being uh, not just simply pushed on the American people, but America's children are being indoctrinated with it, mutilated by it, and their minds warped by it. And I'm mindful of the words of Jesus who said, if you cause any one of these little ones to sin, it's better that a millstone be put around your neck and you be cast into the sea. But these aren't people who worry about such things. They ought to, and we talked about that a little bit in, uh, in the previous show. But what's particularly upsetting are those conservative voices, Christian voices, mind you, that instead of addressing any of this kind of stuff, they save all of their agenda for conservatives who are against it. Because how dare them, having voted for Trump? I'm speaking of guys like David French. I'm speaking of guys like Russell Moore. I'm speaking of guys like Tim Keller. I'm speaking of uh, someone like Beth Moore. Individuals who at one time, I think I would agree, did very fine work but who these days are utterly unreliable um, theologically and cannot be relied upon um, to reason through what's happening in a, um, in a competent way. It's like um, Trump completely unhinged them. And ladies and gentlemen, just to be clear, this isn't about Donald Trump. That is, the, that is the left's narrative. That's what they want you to believe. If you say you're pro-life, ah, you're a Trumper. If you say that you're against um, infanticide, you're a pro-Trumper. If you say you're against uh, men competing in women's sports, you're a radical Trumper. If you say that you're opposed to homosexuality, transgenderism, the sexualization of children, you're an insurrectionist and a trumper. No, you're just a, a, a reasonably thoughtful human being who is adhering to some basic uh, norms of morality. This is where we find our culture going. And yet there are many of these quote unquote conservative evangelical voices who remain by and large silent on these issues and who spend all their time punching right, punching right, meaning they save their agenda for people on the right. Now, before some of you come after me on social media or fire off angry emails to me telling me how wonderful all these people are, don't you dare. Don't you dare. I recall a guy who, who um, was upset that I had published an article in which I took on the theology of Tim Keller these days. And he wrote to me to tell me, you know, how wonderful Tim Keller was as a human being and all that he had done for the kingdom and so on. I don't care. 
It's irrelevant as it relates to the point that I'm making. Whatever Vidkin Quisling did in his past, he wiped it out when he chose to collaborate with the Nazis. And if you are an individual who is supporting this radical leftist agenda or remaining silent on it or watering it down like it really doesn't matter, then you're a collaborator. Tim Keller chose to platform um, Francis Collins, the head of the, uh, the um, what I want to say, the National Institutes of Health. Francis Collins is involved in Joseph Mengele-like experiments on human beings, on unborn children, for, he would say, the good of humanity in the development of vaccines. Um, he chose to platform him. Um, Russell Moore has chosen to do the same thing. And I want to also be clear that repentance admits much. Some of you would like to say, well, Larry, you know, you're a sinner. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Yes, I am. But there's a, there's a difference between us on these points. I have yet to see David French come out and apologize for pushing for two years, or was it three, a false Russia uh, collaboration, um, uh, a collusion narrative. He was calling for Trump to resign on the basis of Trump's alleged collusion with the, um, with the Russians. That narrative has been proven to be false. To my knowledge, French has not come out and offered a mea culpa. He's not offered to come out and say, you know what? I was wrong about that. That would have been the manly thing to do. I was wrong. I apologize to Donald Trump and I apologize to the American people. Turnaround is fair play. If Donald Trump was supposed to resign because of his alleged collusion uh, with the Russians, which has proven to be false, then David French should resign for pushing the narrative that was false. This is the kind of thing that we're seeing. So again, if Russell Moore were to come out and say, I repent, I repent of the fact that I have been punching right, that I've been condemning roughly, oh, 85 million Americans because they chose to try to stem the tide by voting for Donald Trump. I repent of the fact that I chose to attack them rather than using my platform to go after this wicked agenda. I have yet to hear Tim Keller come out and apologizing for pushing Marxist socialist ideology, which he has done. That ideology, ladies and gentlemen, it isn't theologically neutral. It is antithetical to the gospel. It is utterly demonic. It is responsible for the deaths of roughly 125 million people in the 20th century alone, secular regimes having killed roughly 150 million people in the 20th century alone, but 125 million of them being um, Marxist socialist regimes that did it. Mao killed 70 million of his own people all by himself 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts the number of Stalin that, that, that Stalin killed at roughly 60 million. Robert Conquest of Hoover Institute and the great Russian scholar puts that number at about half that, roughly 30 million people. But the point being, the number is staggering. Staggering. And here you have evangelical leaders who are acting like it's really no big deal. Acting like socialism is, you know, it, it has some Christian elements. No, it does not. Not even, not even remotely. Scripture tells us, the Bible tells us, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so do the ideologies that come out of the pit of hell. Black Lives Matter disguises itself as an ideology of light. Marxism disguises itself as an ideology of light. Socialism disguises itself as an ideology of light. Transgenderism, homosexuality, um, the uh, uh, pedophilia, they all disguise themselves as ideologies of light. But every one of them is straight out of the pit of hell, ladies and gentlemen. And when your Christian leaders are not speaking out against these things, when they are not condemning them, when they are not exposing them for the evil that they are, they're not doing their jobs. But what is worse is when you, you actively participate in it and suggest, oh, you know, it's a... You know, it has some good ideas. It has some Christian elements. And we've seen this. We've seen this among individuals like Russell Moore, like Tim Keller, like Francis Collins, uh, like David French. And uh, Moore is a guy that I, I really want to talk about here for a moment. You know, Russell Moore, years ago, the two of us did a conference together. Um, in Birmingham, Alabama. It was just the two of us, as I, I recall, and it was an apologetics conference. Uh, Moore was at that time dean of the doctoral program at uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. And, um, you know, he had one night uh, where he spoke, and then when he was done speaking, he would, you know, sit on the stage and do a Q&A with, um, with the pastor and take questions from the audience. And then the next night, um, I did the same thing. I spoke, and then I did a, uh, you know, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes of Q&A with the congregation. And I wanted to hear what Moore had to say. I wanted, I wanted to be respectful and, you know, listen to, to others uh, who were speaking in the conference, and in this case, that was him. And um, I... I really didn't find anything that he said um, objectionable, questionable, not objectionable. Um, and in this regard, at that time, Veggie Tales were quite popular, and Moore condemned them. You can find this online where he's, you know, he's he's written an article about Veggie Tales and saying that they don't make make Christ um, central enough. I believe is his argument, but he was kind of urging parents, you know, not not to um, let their children watch them. My kids liked VeggieTales. Um, I not only found them harmless, I, I found them a positive um, thing, a positive influence. 
um, for our children. And it was certainly better than some of the other crap that they might find on TV or on the internet. So that just struck me as kind of an odd argument, but okay, you know, you, you have that conviction and, and you feel that um, children ought to be, I don't know, reading Spurgeon's old semi, uh, uh, sermons. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what he would offer as an alternative there. And, uh, and then another thing that he said that I thought was, was odd, but is, you know, is common among many Baptists, many of my Baptist brethren, is he made the argument that um, in John chapter 2, that when Jesus turned water into wine, that it wasn't fermented. He was making the argument, the alcohol, that all, out, drinking alcohol was wrong. Now, it's not my purpose in this particular show to address either VeggieTales or alcohol. Rather, my point is, if your conservatism goes to such a point that you won't let your children watch VeggieTales because you don't think it makes Jesus central enough. I, I respect that position. I can respect that position. And you think that drinking alcohol of any kind is, uh, is a sin. That position I find much harder. And by the way, I say that, ladies and gentlemen, as a guy who you know, I really doesn't drink. Anybody who knows me will tell you that. Uh, I have I never been a guy who liked alcohol but not for religious or theological reasons. It just doesn't taste very good to me. Um, my vice uh, of choice is sweet tea with lemon. I'm a big fan of sweet tea with lemon. In fact, I'm lamenting the fact that I don't have any right here to, um, to wet my dry throat. But I don't, I don't take the position that alcohol is... Um, is a sin, you know, for you to drink alcohol. I don't, I don't take that position at all because knowing what I do about the ancient world, uh, alcohol, one of the, the, the reasons beyond the fact that many liked it, that they, that they had it was for the simple reason that it would ferment, it would last. Um, and it's quite clear in scripture at various times individuals do get drunk from it. So the idea that they were just making grape juice, I find problematic. But all of that said, my point as it relates here is how does a guy go from, from veggie tales are not healthy for your children and you should never drink alcohol to a position where he is a de facto supporter of the radical left's agenda? I don't know how you get there. How does that happen? And were I talking with Moore, undoubtedly he would say he doesn't support the radical left's agenda. By not using your platform to go after them, you're supporting the agenda. By punching right, you're supporting that agenda. And, uh, and has, has, has Moore never caught on to the fact that he is a darling of the left for one reason and one reason only, and it's because they see him as a stick they can wield to beat evangelical Christians and, and tell them they're all sinners. They know that their own messaging from, let's say, Don Lemon is not going to be effective with conservatives. So what they do is they select they select someone who, re who represents what they believe at CNN and MSNBC, at the New York Times, um, at the Atlantic. They find a guy like that who's saying what they're saying, 
and platform him against conservatives. Moore perhaps thinks that it's because he's a wonderful spokesman. He's a wonderful writer, and that's why the Washington Post publishes him. Maybe Tim Keller thinks the same thing because the New York Times has published him, an article in which he talks about socialism and how it's not so bad after all. Maybe Beth Moore thinks that um, because she is so frequently quoted by media on the left, it's because she's really a wonderful human being and Christian. If you believe that, you are very naive. Um, I knew back in the day, in these days, it's almost impossible for me to get published by um, outlets that at one time did publish me. CNN, I used to do a lot of work, did much more work for CNN than I did for, um, for Fox. Um, the Atlantic, um, two of my most popular articles ever, two of their most popular articles ever, I published with The Atlantic. But even then, I knew that I had to be careful because if I was being welcomed by them, if they were willing to platform me, I had to, I had to reevaluate my message and say, what is it that I'm saying that they like because it's consistent with what they're saying? One of my most popular pieces was a piece that I wrote for The Atlantic called um, listening to young atheists. And in that particular article, you can find it, listening to young atheists, and they subtitled it, Lessons for a Stronger Church. I was very pleased that they published that. They published my scriptural quotations. They really didn't even try to, um, to, to shut me down um, in, in what I was communicating. But I realized that part of what appealed to the Atlantic was I was preaching to the church. I, in that particular article, as I was saying, I had spent more than a year interviewing college-age, high school-age atheists and asking them, in fact, my question was quite specific, tell me your journey to unbelief. And it is a journey to unbelief. Um, you know, Dr. Oliveira uh, Petrovich of Oxford University, a research psychologist, tells us that we're born theists. We're not born tabula rasa, as many of the atheists would tell you. We're not born a blank slate. We're not born atheists. They would have you believe that. No, we're born theists, not born Christians. I want to be clear on that. Not born Hindu, not born Muslim, none of those things, but born theists. We're born with a, with a, a bent towards belief. And um, so the, the, hence the reason Scripture says that it's unnatural. You know, you're a fool if you don't believe in God. But I knew that part of what they liked was that I was preaching to the church, you need to be more compassionate, you need to be listening more to, um, to these atheists, what they're saying, what they're feeling, that you might reach them. I'm not saying you alter your, you know, that, that you compromise scripture, rather that, that, that you, you, you need to retool so that you can reach these, um, these people. The fact that that these days, uh, it's kind of a feather in my cap these days because those outlets have all been radicalized. You might say they already were. Nothing to the degree that they are these days. The chances of The Atlantic publishing me these days are about nil. 
uh, the chances of CNN platforming me as they once did are about nil. And it's getting that way with Fox News. It's increasingly moving that way with Fox News. So the fact that um, Russell Moore and Beth Moore and Tim Keller and David French still find warm company over on that side ought to set off alarm bells in their heads. But it really doesn't. It doesn't seem that they've caught on to that. And this is why I was quoting Luke chapter 16, the story of the shrewd manager. Because the shrewd manager, seeing which way his occupational winds were blowing, he was about to lose one job. So what did he do? He leveraged the time that he had in order to find, to be welcomed, as Jesus put it, to be welcomed into new dwellings, to be welcomed into new homes. He saw that he was losing one, one source of support. Therefore, he ingratiated himself to another source of support. And I think that's what you're seeing in a very big way. And by the way, not just among these people, any of whom I would have on this show to discuss this. If they think I'm wrong, I'm happy to talk to you. I quite willingly have a conversation with you. But I think that what we're seeing is not just with them. We are seeing it down at the, uh, at the church level. We're seeing it um, at the level of just ordinary Christians who are abandoning former opinions that were once deemed to be popular. Let's say one man, one woman, um, you know, uh, a family. You're seeing them abandon those views because of the pressure they're feeling, both in their jobs and on social media and the broader culture, that they might be embraced and welcomed into new dwellings. It's what you're seeing in the corporate world. Um, you know, with Disney, for instance, their CEO coming out quite openly, brazenly telling you that it is their agenda to sexualize your children. That's their agenda. Wasn't Walt Disney's vision, but now Disney's, quote, wonderful world uh, embraces everything, all things perverse. And so many people have fallen silent or they've become outright collaborators. This is what happens um, when the enemy moves in and begins to occupy people begin to say, um, you know what? I was always on your side. I was always on your side. There are many people who become, who become quizzlings in this kind of scenario. Make note of who those people are because eventually the tide's going to turn in another direction. And whether it ever does on, uh, on this earth or not, I don't know. I, I'm, I can't see the future. But I do know this, one day we will stand before just God and he will judge. And I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. That isn't the time in mere Christianity. He says that isn't the time to choose your side. That is the moment when you discover which side you were really on. That's the time you discover what side you were really on. And it'll be revealed at that time. And many people in my profession, listen, the easiest thing for me to do, you know, we're supported by donations. The fact that I can do what I'm doing right now, that I can write articles, that I can speak, 
Um, all of that is done as a result of people who support our work. The easiest thing I could do to raise money is if I were to come out as, you know, a, uh, a supporter of the transgender agenda, as a supporter of the left's radical socialist agenda. You know what would make them really love me is if I came out and I declared myself gay. <laughs> that would be, I'd probably get government funding if I did that. The show would probably be moved to NPR and mainstreamed. As it is, as it is, um, we're trying to hold the line. And we refuse to collaborate um, with the enemy. And again, I just want to emphasize um, repentance. Repentance admits much. But I'm not seeing repentance among people uh, who are doing these things. Rather, I am seeing a desire, a willingness to collaborate that they might be welcomed into new dwellings at CNN at um, the Washington Post, at the New York Times, at NPR, that people there might tell them how wonderful they are and what wonderful Christian people they are. The reality, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid, is very, very different. We're out of time for today's show, but we hope that you will tune in. Subscribe. Subscribe to the Larry Alex Taunton Show on uh, it's across every platform. You'll find us on iTunes. You'll, fi- you'll find us at my website at Larry Alex Taunton. That's T-A-U-N-T-O-N, LarryAlexTaunton.com. Have a great day. Turn out the lights. The party's over. <laughs> they say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now?